This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. My next guest has joined us in the studio. Julia DeVille is an artist, a taxidermist and a jeweller and joins us to talk about her new exhibition, which is one of two exhibitions on at Linden New Art in St Kilda, which was has just recently reopened after being closed for significant renovations. Uh, Julia's exhibition is called Wholeness and the Implicit Order. So... Um, I've been fascinated by your practice for years, ever since I first encountered your work. I think the, the first piece of yours I ever saw was a taxidermied mouse with kind of uh, gemstones for eyes yeah. and the, the level of detail in that and the something that could be seen as morbid in the, the sense of memento mori but is also a celebration of life in a way. Yeah. Tell us more about kind of your practice because I understand it's you're moving away a little bit from, from taxidermy and, and cutting up dead animals to make art. Yeah, well, I started out studying jewellery and taxidermy in 2004, I think, and so it was just natural for me to combine the two techniques together. So I started off doing mice like the one that you saw with diamonds in the eyes and little silver tails and they would be brooches so they were wearable pieces and... As my work developed, it slowly became larger and larger pieces until they were unwearable and they became sculpture that was adorned with jewellery, materials and techniques. Um, so I've been doing that since, yeah, since probably 2000, 2003 or 2004 and I thought I would always do that forever um, but just in the last few years I've started moving away from that and learning about holography and virtual reality and 3D work. So that's kind of the new direction I'm going in. So this exhibition at Linden is kind of in some ways what positioned at a, at a nexus point because it includes yeah. elements of the, the work you've been known for in the past but is also moving into new directions. Yeah, so I've I've only been learning about holography for the last couple of years and... I've been making holograms of my taxidermy work, so there's still an element of that in there. But I guess I really like the contrast of how kind of cheesy and modern holograms are with the very kind of um, ornate Victorian aesthetic that I have previously been using. And also I'm intrigued by the fact that holograms, in a way, the technology needed to make them is very solid, but a hologram itself is uh, insubstantial, unlike the, the solid taxidermied work you've made in the past. Yeah, but it's the, the thing I like about the holograms is it's kind of, in a way, it's a similar idea because a taxidermy animal is almost like a hologram of a real animal in a way. It's, it, it's, a, it's an appearance of an animal, but the animal is long gone or whatever the essence of that animal is. And then to make a hologram of that, it's kind of, in a way, a similar thing as well. It's like it appears to be there, but it's not in a lot of ways. So it's a logical extension or continuation of a process. Yeah, yeah. yeah. How difficult has it been to learn how to make, create, project holograms? I was just very lucky to come across a woman called Martina who's the director of the Holographic um, Centre for the Arts in New York and she's originally from Melbourne and she just offered to mentor me. So whenever she comes back to Melbourne, we've spent a couple of days at the RMIT Physics Lab using... They used to have a holography lab there. I don't think they do anymore. And then for this exhibition, we actually set up a really big laboratory next to my studio in a vacant building and brought down a, a giant pulse laser from 
the University of New South Wales, which um, I think they've given to her or loaned to her. It's, it's quite incredible. I think it's the biggest one in Australia. And so we set up a lab and we're working on that in the lead up to the show. So, yeah. So it's an ambitious exhibition. It's uh, You've taken over, I think, what, three rooms at Linden? Uh, five. Five, yeah. yeah. Uh, and so on one level, uh, referencing the the history of the building and the, the fact that this used to be this ornate kind of neo-Victorian, well, kind of neo-Gothic Victorian home, yeah. which then ties in with that kind of Gothic sensibility of some of your work as well. Yeah, well, the, I've been working in immersive environments since I think 2013 when I did my show at Melbourne Now and I created a dining room and it was wallpapered and there were curtains and I had paintings from the NDV's collection on the walls with my food-themed works like displayed on platters, on tables. Um, so this is kind of the extension of that. And, you know, Normally when I exhibit in a gallery, the gallery is this modern white cube and I have to dress it to fit my aesthetic, but Lyndon needed very little dressing. Like we painted black and white stripes in one of the walls and we painted the hologram rooms black. Um, but other than that, it already had all the architraves and the skirting boards and the wooden floorboards and it's just such a beautiful historical building. So it was, yeah, the perfect place for me to kind of do this turning point work. And it's not just... Uh the, the the taxidermied work uh, and the holograms, but you're you're really focusing on uh, all aspects of the environment. So scent is playing a part as well, for yeah. example. Yeah. Well, so we've got um, there's a scentscape in each room, which was a bit more difficult. Like I, there were things I wanted to do, but some of them were not possible. Like in the hologram rooms, I wanted to have ozone generators to kind of create that kind of fresh technology smell, and then I wanted to have the smell of rain in the room with the um, giraffe and that sort of thing but once we ordered the smell of rain essential oil it kind of just smelled like soap and the ozone apparently can cause asthma attacks so there were a few things that kind of had to be toned down with that but there is also a soundscape which is actually one of my favourite parts of the whole show so there's a children's bedroom and the soundscape for that is like music box versions of Nirvana and the Smashing Pumpkin songs and then in the dining room there's piano and orchestral versions of you know, old rock songs as well, Radiohead and Nirvana. And then in the room with the giraffe, I've actually got covers of rock songs done by children. So I've got the Smashing Pumpkin Zero done by my friend's twin daughters. And I've also got the White Stripes Seven Nation Army by another friend's son. Why create new versions of known songs? Well, I guess for me, this exhibition's kind of a self-portrait in a way. Like it's really referencing my childhood and my teenage years which I consider to be quite formative in my practice and Smashing Pumpkins, Nirvana, Radiohead, all of those bands were heavily influential in that period. I think they were bands that showed me um, about breaking the mould and about creativity and that sort of thing and so I think to just use those songs on their own is not that interesting but then to turn it into this childlike version kind of takes it to a new level and when you hear the music box versions it takes a while to realize what it is like at first it just sounds like you know a music box song and then you realize it smells like teen spirit instead or something. of fleur or yeah, yeah yeah and it's it's really cool now you've mentioned the giraffe a couple of times yeah. let's talk about your uh uh, kind of process and approach when it comes to taxidermy because uh, you're vegetarian, you're not killing animals in order yeah. to make art with them, you're waiting uh, to obtain an animal that has died naturally. Yeah. 
So uh, the exhibition includes uh, a taxidermied baby giraffe. There's a, a zebra in there as yeah. well. There's some lion cubs. How long does it take to to source those kind of materials, unlike the, the gold or the jewels that you can just order in at the drop of a hat? Well, there's, there's not really a sourcing of the animals. It's what comes to me. So it's just that's why traditionally I've worked on domestics, a lot of stillborn deer, cats, that sort of thing, because it's whatever people's pets are that they donate to me or birds that are found dead. And I have farmer contacts that give me stillborns as well. The giraffe actually came about when I was doing some work at the Queen Victoria Museum in Launceston and the taxidermist I was working with just in passing mentioned that there was a baby giraffe in the freezer and I was like okay how do I get my hands on this thing it had been there for over 30 years it it died in Adelaide Zoo and um, so they were not willing to sell it to me they were apparently planning to use it at some point so I harassed them for about five years and they eventually agreed to sell it to me and so the process with that was that he couldn't actually be taxidermied because he'd been in the freezer for so long there was a bit of deterioration in the fur so we had to freeze dry him which is a a different process so all of the bone and muscle is still inside you just remove the organs and then he's posed and wired up and everything and he goes into this giant industrial freeze dryer which basically sucks all of the moisture out of the air and turns him into draft jerky and then I decorate him after that. So it, I've actually been working, you know, the start of this piece is probably started 10 years ago. Okay. Now, some people may find the idea of working with uh, dead animals in place, turning them into works of art, morbid or even grotesque. But yeah. I'm sure many of those same people are sitting down to a steak dinner uh, yeah. or, or uh, kind of happily devouring dead animals yeah. and not thinking about where the animals come from. You seem very intimately involved with the, the process of sourcing and working with these animals and quite respectful of them. Yeah, I think I've since I was a very young child, I've always had a very strong awareness of death. I don't know where it came from or how it happened, but it's been something that's been a part of my life since I was about two or three. Um, and I've also always been an animal lover, and that's why I became vegetarian at a very young age. Um, so I guess for me, the work is about celebrating the life of the animal, but also showing the beauty and the fragility in them. You know, I work a lot on mice and pigeons and rats and things that people consider to be kind of, you know, pointless animals or things that people are happy to exterminate or don't pay any attention to. But if you look at a pigeon, it's actually a really incredibly beautiful bird. So is a sparrow and so is a mouse. And so... You know, although to do a giraffe is like an amazing, majestic animal and a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, I think you can you can create equal meaning with a rat as well. And in the past, the work of yours that I've seen has definitely reflected a, a kind of uh, a Victorian sensibility yeah. uh, and in terms of brooches and costuming and, and so forth. Um, it feels like you're, you're moving away from that... Uh, that awareness or kind of as well to a degree. Is that is that true? Well, I guess, like, I just love the Victorian era. Is it, That's kind of my where my taste sits. Um, and the way I'm doing the holograms, even though they're very futuristic and modern, they're still, I've had um, Kate Road, who's one of my favourite Australian artists. She's been creating frames and resin for the holograms, which is still very... Um, Victorian in style but they're fluorescent colours you know there's like hot pink ones and that sort of thing and she's also built a case for the giraffe so 
I'm still going with the Victorian theme, but it's becoming a bit more pop, like you'd almost call it pop Victorian or something because I'm using a lot of bright pink and fluoro colours and then the holograms are obviously fluorescently coloured as well. So my work has traditionally been very black and something in me has shifted in the last couple of years and now I'm all about pink and colour and white and stuff. Yeah. Now, one of the things that I can see the there's a clear parallel between your practice and your interest in the, the Victorian era because that was a point where we didn't uh, hide away from death. We yeah. didn't kind of uh, pretend that it didn't happen. Death was very much a part of life and there were rituals around mourning and, yeah. and so forth. Um, the uh, kind of what rituals do you have yourself though in terms of kind of in in daily life uh, are, do you create kind of contemporary ritual for yourself the way that Vic, the victorians had rituals of their own um i definitely have especially as i get older a lot of contemplation about death and you know i have a skull tattooed on my thumb which is there as a reminder of mortality and you know i i see the whole kind of um recognising death as like a, a just a different carpe diem, you know, it's another way to to realise the significance of life. So they're, they're kind of intertwined to me. Um, I guess my, my rituals that I have would be more along the lines of meditation and that sort of thing. And to me, I guess that's in a way about death too, a different type of death. Finding a stillness in, yeah, in life. Yeah. yeah. The exhibition is called Wholeness and the Implicit Order. It's one of two exhibitions that is on at Linden. Uh, Natalie Ryan uh, is the other artist who's got the opening exhibition in this uh, newly renovated Linden New Art. Julia, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Science. We're going to talk poetry and more with Alicia Sometimes, who for 14 years was the host of Oral Text here on Triple R. More recently, you uh, may have heard her as one of six people on the Outer Sanctum podcast, Talking Footy, uh, and she's also a poet and a writer and many other things, and an <laughs> old friend of mine, Alicia Sometimes. Hello, love it. Have you? With us. Speaking of blasts from the past, huh? There's pulp, and now there's me here. It's just, it's so good to be back in the Triple R studios and uh, sitting across from you. Couldn't be happier. It's been a while since you've been on our airwaves. I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. been a while. Yeah. So you're here not to reminisce, though, but to talk no. about a show created for Melbourne Festival. It's called Particle Wave and is being uh, presented at the Melbourne Planetarium at ScienceWorks over in Spotswood. So as a poet, I know that one of the things that has always fascinated you has been science. Uh, and you've, in the past, you've fused science and poetry and performance and projection and music and more into uh, into an earlier show. Now this new show, can kind of taking that and running with it and continuing it and exploring gravitational waves. Alicia, <laughs> what are gravitational waves? Gravitational waves are the ripples in space-time that emanate from a source that moves. So you and I are creating gravitational waves, but they are absolutely way, way too small for anyone to detect. But two black holes merging or two neutron stars merging in, merging in space or something really big 
happening in space, give off these ripples that if you can imagine a fabric, they sort of wave and move in space. So the space itself is moving. And LIGO, the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory. Try saying that five (laughs) times quickly after a glass of wine. That's right. Um, They discovered that... uh, that there are such things as gravitational waves. Einstein predicted them in 2015 or 2016. 1916, 1915. 1915. 1915. Um, and he, you know, to have this prediction come true almost 100 years later and for these gravitational waves to be detected is, is an absolute feat of amazing science. So I just fell in love with the story of the gravitational waves were discovered, but the fact that they they move through us, they are out there, they can change the way we look at space and I just think it's an incredible story. So I just thought planetarium, gravitational waves, art science, let's do this. And it it is a phenomenal story. It, it, the sheer notion of a cataclysmic event so major that it sends ripples out through, uh, like throwing a stone into a pond, but through ripples through space and time itself is just phenomenal. And as the scientist Alan Duffy told me, because uh, uh, I interviewed him for and you for an article in Cosmos magazine about this, so the, uh, his analogy was by the time those gravitational waves reach Earth, they, they're so kind of infinitesimal that... To measure them is the equivalent of measuring a human hair from the nearest star. It's a phenomenal feat of of science and detection. Absolutely. And in 2017, uh, the team won for no- the Nobel Prize for Physics. And it is just such a tiny, as you say, minuscule detection. And I just think that we, we were listening and we were watching and we were waiting for this. And um, the fact that these people believed something, Einstein would just be beside himself, the, the fact that this was discovered. So I thought that... Um, a collaboration with artists to, to have their take on what the science is would be amazing. And myself and Andrew Watson, who's done a lot of the music and the visuals, we um, gathered all these artists and scientists together and the scientists will talk a little bit to the actual science but we've got wonderful writers like Maxine Beniba-Clark, Omar Musa, Jordi Alberston, uh, Lisa Gorton, and Chrissy Neen taking on the topic and then these beautiful visual artists and sound artists just taking us on a wild ride. So you get into the planetarium. You've been to the planetarium. You lie back, you look up, and I hope that just the story will envelope you. Why use art and poetry to talk about science? Isn't it scientists' job to talk about science? That's a great question and the scientists do it a million times better than I could ever do. They're probably listening to my description of gravitational waves and and knowing that they could do better. And I am an absolute believer in science and science communication and I'm passionate and I'm such a champion for it. But I love the science so much that I just... For me, it was what influences me and what makes me feel passionate about it. So just to take on the story and make it my own and make it the artist's own, I think is just such a great thing to do that I'm hoping that you leave this show with a little bit of wisdom about gravitational waves, but just a whole lot of love for science and just to go out and look into the night sky and feel a little bit differently. 
the the fact that there could be gravitational waves passing through us right now from an exploding neutron star kind of a million years ago is fascinating as well because it it's, it gives us a different perspective on the universe and that idea of deep time. So rather than just a minute passing or an hour passing, a millennia passing or 50 millennia or something, again, that's where art can perhaps kind of put some of that into a perspective that we a perspective we can actually understand and deal with rather than grappling with the idea of trying to think what it's to think about 15 billion years passing or something that's right and i think you put it beautifully and to to feel this to feel time passing is such a uh, an abstract idea in itself and i also love how are we standing richard because not only are gravitational waves passing through us, but muons, neutrinos, gamma rays, X-rays. How are we even sleeping when all these things pass through us and we don't even know? So this invisible world we're trying as artists to make visible and, of course, we're not getting it exactly right, but we're trying to uh, inspire and paint a picture of the universe as a larger piece. Particle Wave is the creation of Alicia Sometimes and co-produced by Andrew Watson. And, and as we said, it's happening in the Melbourne Planetarium. Now, why did you choose the Planetarium just because of, of, of its connection with science or also because that kind of the fact that you sit in a chair, it, recline back and look up at this great domed ceiling, which is a, a beautiful place to project work. Traditionally, it's where you see projections of the, of the cosmos, the, the universe, the solar system, to help kids understand kind of the size of planets and the stars and, and so forth. But why use it as a place for entertainment? I... I think that's a great question and I love the canvas of the dome. It's just one of those things. Some people have a flat piece of paper. I love the canvas of the dome. It's sort of, it's it feels like it's almost 360 around you. You can have objects moving at you. You can play around with dimension. Uh, the surround sound is incredible and you're right, there's a lot of scientific shows that go on at ScienceWorks and the planetarium. Um, so to bring a little bit of art is just something that um, I think in the dome can just create a different experience than you would get in a cinema or a flat screen. So, Was it hard to convince the, the crew out at ScienceWorks to, to let you have access to the space? <laughs> yeah. Yes, I had done a show before um, called Elemental, which was about the beginning of the universe, and they saw that, and that was on at the Melbourne Festival quite some years ago, and they saw that I, you know, I wasn't just talking. I was walking the talk, in other words, so... Um, yes, but it's always one of those things when you say, please, may I have lots of your time and your expertise and I want to talk about gravitational waves and will you put it on? So, yeah, and, and I can't believe the artists have come along with me on this journey as well. I'm just so blessed that I said, let's talk about gravitational waves and the scientists who gave their time. It's just an incredible thing to sit down and listen to Alan Duffy or Kendall Ackley or uh, Katie Mack and just say... Um, what are these things? What is, where are we in the universe? What is going on? And so, as you said, the, as part of this show, so we've got sound, we've got projection, we've got performance, we've got uh, audio of the scientists giving us the facts. And are the poets and the writers that you've brought on board for this, are they then 
uh, what, responding to those facts? Are they presenting the facts in a different way or are they just riffing off them and going off on wild flights of fancy? Oh, I love that. It's a creative interpretation. There are some wild flights of fancy, there's no doubt, but there's also some beautiful weaving in of facts and that's uh, that's a wonderful thing. And I just wanted to say too, we're um, we're almost sold out and we have announced because we've had six shows that we're having an extra lot of shows. So, okay. um, yes, on the 20th of October. Uh, again at 7pm and 9pm? That's right. Yeah. So, because uh, I was just about to say that if you want to see Particle Wave at the Melbourne Planetarium in Science Works, it's on Saturday the 6th, Wednesday the 10th and Sunday the 13th of October at 7pm and 9pm each night and now extra shows on the 20th which is a Saturday Saturday night night. so Saturday the 20th as well again at 7 and 9pm if you want to book to see Particle Wave as part of this year's Melbourne International Arts Festival. I'm coming to see it on Saturday night at 9pm. I'm very much looking forward to being immersed inside your brain Alicia sometimes (laughs) which I kind of think that sitting in the planetarium will kind of feel like that. Mine and others and I hope you enjoy the music, visuals and sound. So uh, as we said, Particle Wave, part of Melbourne International Arts Festival. If you want to book, jump online, festival.melbourne. Ladies and gentlemen, start googling. Alicia, sometimes, (laughs) thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks Richard. How do you create a theatre work for audiences who are blind or have low vision, but also simultaneously a work that will work for sighted audiences? That was the conundrum uh, kind of for a group of makers who've created a work called Figment in the Drama Theatre at Monash Performing Arts Centre in Clayton. Joining us to tell us more is one of the student creators of the work, Michelle Robertson. Michelle, good morning. Good morning, Richard. Thank you so much for having me. Very great pleasure. So I'm really intrigued by this idea of making a work that is broadly accessible for sighted and non-sighted audiences so that everybody can get something out of the show. Absolutely. I mean, you said conundrum, that's the perfect word because, you know, how on earth do you do that? Um, Because you do have people uh, who are obviously blind completely or have low vision um, or a vision impairment of some kind, but then you also have people who are fully sighted. What does that look like? What does that feel like? What does that seem like? What does that experience be like? So that was exactly what we faced. And it wasn't until the first few weeks of actually working with Vision Australia clients that we realised just how easy this could be done. Um, We had some incredible uh, feedback and some um, amazing inspiration from Vision Australian clients who uh, were blind or vision impaired themselves, who came in and spoke to us about their life and about the changes that their life, you know, has undergone, you know, since, you know, uh, getting a vision impairment or if they already were born blind, um, and how we can look at uh, the world in a different way, looking at it through perspectives. A perception and going on a journey and that's kind of where we started and so then 10 weeks later we now come to where we are and it has turned into be this incredible colour cycle journey uh, that everybody can enjoy because it is an experience of all senses. 
So we're talking rather than a traditional scripted theatre show, for example, you've created something much more, what, more tactile, more immersive? Very much so. It's a divisive piece, so it's very tactile, very immersive. And when we say immersive, it doesn't mean that the audience members have to get involved and they're not part of the whole production as such, but they immerse themselves into the space, the space that's been created. Now, it's in the drama theatre at the Monash University. However, you wouldn't know it the moment you walk in. So from the very first time you walk into that space, you could be anywhere that's not a theatre. And I think that's what's really incredible. So you walk in straight away and go, this is not what I'm expecting. And it opens your mind and it opens up that perception of what theatre can be, let alone perception about what life and your world and the world around you can be. So how have you changed the space, for example? Are we just talking something as basic as taking the seats out or bringing the audience up onto the stage or backstage, for example, rather than seated in the auditorium? Yeah, they're definitely not seated in the auditorium. Uh, The journey into the space is part of the excitement and part of the actual theatrical experience. And once you go into the space itself, you're actually um, seated in a sort of a circle around the actual stage area, but you are surrounded by incredible um, sound, smells, you know, tactile things that you can experience the entire journey through this theatrical um, piece. It's really quite an an amazing uh, production. And given that it's a theatre piece as well, Mm -hmm. one of the... Is there then, as well as the all these kind of multi-sensory elements, is there still a narrative, a story, characters, drama, conflict, all of those other uh, aspects of theatre? Absolutely. There is always. I, I don't think you could have theatre without all of those things, <laughs> um, but in a different way. So what we've, we've done is we've all sort of written uh, piece, pieces that, you know, from personal experiences, from experiences that we've um, seen and felt and, um, you know, had uh, through our Vision Australia clients and their stories, and we taking sort of those words and um, creating a script as such, but in a colour cycle. So the idea is we're dealing with theatre through colour. What is colour, particularly if you can't see it? Um, So we're trying to actually allow everybody to be able to feel what colour is as opposed to seeing it necessarily. So bringing in what uh, almost an element of synesthesia, for example, that notion of being able to hear or feel a colour. Absolutely. And that could be through verbal, that could be through the words that are spoken, it could be the the musicality, the songs that have been created, Um, but it also can be through the atmosphere, what is around you, what you're uh, hypersensitive to. So, um, yeah, it really is an incredible piece of work that's been put together. Um, And obviously we've had the the, um, incredible Jolian James from Arena Theatre and Simone French, um, two incredible industry professionals who have been working with us, uh, our final year students at Monash University, and uh, being able to create something so uh, big in such a small space uh, has been a really unique opportunity. Now, you're one of the students at the Monash University Centre for Theatre and Performance, which over the last few years has been commissioning and making some really interesting work. Like I know whether it's uh, working with established playwrights and directors, for example, uh, to with the students or creating work, what, for audiences in residential care yes. and in kindergarten as well. Absolutely. So it, tell us a little bit more about the course itself, given that you're in the final year. What are you getting from it and how perhaps does it differ from uh, more traditional, say, acting-focused courses or animaturing or direction that you might do at, I don't know, WAPA or yes, the VCA? VCA or whatever. Um, certainly, uh, the Centre of Theatre Performance uh, is different in the way that it, you become a theatre maker 
And I think that is what's really incredible because we get so much opportunity to do everything. So we perform, there is opportunity for direction, for stage management, for lighting, sound. Um, uh, you know, we, we get a cross-section of devising work and creating that, that work yourself as well. So we're not concentrating on just one particular area. Um, it's a real good, it's a cross-section across it all. And we also look at the academia side of it. So the history behind theatre, which I think is really important as a theatre maker to know that what is the history of theatre and how what's been done in the past, how has it been rejigged and how are we continuing with that moving forward to the future. So um, I think that's from our perspective, that's what I've loved about being at Monash University Centre for Theatre Performance because uh, it has given us a great overview of theatre in general and I can go out now feeling very confident that I can be a, um, an incredible theatre maker and, and create theatre that I love, that I want to see, that I want out there, that, that deals with social issues and in a, in a way that may be slightly different um, which is exactly what we've done here, obviously, with Figment. Yeah. Um, in terms of the the student body who have been graduating over the, the last few years, have we started to see in, in Melbourne an identifiable type of theatre being made by alumni from the, the Monash University Centre for Theatre and Performance in the same way, say, that uh, 10, 12 years ago uh, we might have seen a, a wave of contemporary performance slash live art practice coming out of students from Deakin, for example? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, most definitely. I mean, the alumni that have come out of... Um, Monash University Centre for Theatre and Performance um, has a a very broad view about what theatre is. And you've got the likes of sort of Christopher Bryant, who's writing, um, you know, incredible work. You've got the likes of Daniel Lamon, who is directing incredible um, uh, performances. Um, uh, um, you've got the incredible women who have created different theatre and they've come out of Monash University uh, Centre of Theatre Performance. So I think that really indicates how this course is very much about making theatre, about bringing something, your passion, whatever that might be within the theatre, and bring it out there and, re- and realising it. And I think that's what's been incredible. And in this instance, realising a work called Figment that has been created for audiences who are both, whether sighted or non-sighted, that everybody can have a kind of rich, immersive theatrical experience. Most definitely. And it really will be. And it's a wonderful opportunity. We were sold out for tomorrow's shows, um, but we're, uh, we do have a few tickets available left for the Saturday shows so please do come and join us because this is going to be an incredible opportunity for a journey and of discovery. I've been chatting with Michelle Robertson one of the student creators of the work. Michelle thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much Richard for having me. And joining me in the studio is Kate Solan, the Artistic Director of Raucous, who are a Melbourne kind of ensemble of performers with and without disability. Uh, And Kate joins us to talk about the acclaimed Raucous work, Song for a Weary Throat, which premiered at TheatreWorks last year uh, in December. And I didn't get to see it. Uh, And I'm so glad that it's been picked up and represented as part of this year's Melbourne International Arts Festival. So finally I get a chance to see what my friends and colleagues were raving about. Kate, hello. Hello. Welcome to Triple R. And um, like me, you are also uh, kind of cold bound. That's right. Like everyone in Melbourne at the moment, it seems. It is definitely doing the round. So I was thinking earlier this year, because I got the flu injection at the start of the the flu season. It was literally only about a week ago. I was very cocky thinking to myself, aha, I have not been sick all winter and uh, now it's spring and, of course, I'm sick. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. 
suits me to show off to myself. <laughs> That's uh, right. Effectively, I think my immune system went, uh-huh, we'll show you. So, anyway, enough about me and being sick. Uh, song for a Weary Throat. Tell us a little bit more about the work. What's the what's the focus? What's the, the, the central idea? Yeah, so the work um, has been devised and created by the Raucous Ensemble, which is 14 performers with and without disability and um, and with the Invenio singers. And essentially when we, we take a long time to make a raucous work and um, when, we, when we began this work, we, it was a particularly dark time both kind of globally and, and, and actually for a lot of people personally and we were talking a lot about um, hope and how do you make a show about hope when things feel hopeless. And and that was kind of the starting point. And really the shows evolved into a work about the state of an aftermath, what happens post um, a traumatic or or deep loss and how do you recover and what does a community do to repair? And so presenting that through dance, physical theatre, so not a standard text-based ensemble by any means. Not not by any means. And the work um, the work is non-linear. It's um, much more uh, the experience of the state of the aftermath rather than a kind of narrative that you follow from beginning to end. However, the piece does have a journey that you can follow, but there's lots of room to make up your own meaning from the work. The opportunity to represent work is relatively rare in the small to medium and independent sector. To have this chance to remount Song for a Weary Throat, what impact has that had on the, the shape and the texture and the tone of the work? Oh, it has just been such a gift to be able to revisit a work. It is a dream to do that because you actually really only understand a work when it meets an audience. And so when it meets the, when it met its first audience at Theatre Works, you go, oh, that's what we've made. And so to kind of revisit a work, understanding that, understanding what happens when it meets an audience and to be able to go deeper and to revisit it and really, really um, delve into it, it's just been really pleasurable and thrilling and we're so thrilled that we're going to be able to show it again. Now... Cameron Woodhead reviewed it for The Age last year in uh, Four and a Half Stars, a, a glowing review describing it as brilliant and transporting and spoke a little bit about um, shades of what almost kind of medieval kind of tone to the work and it, reading that made me think of, I don't know, of mystery plays and, mm. and so on. Where did the, the work begin? What, apart from that notion of kind of hope in a, in a, in a dark time, yeah. was there, in terms of your, was the particular style of research that led you off in a particular direction yeah for we, we were looking at um, we were looking at uh, pictures of an imagery of abandoned spaces and um, we were talking about kind of uh, community spaces places where lots of people meet where lots and lots of experiences have taken place so community halls or dance halls and so um, when we created uh, we had a creative development we set up this um, abandoned space and this idea of an abandoned dance hall and then we did these really long form improvisations with the singers in that um, space and um, and we talked about all the different states emotional states that you go through in the state of an aftermath of a trauma and we and we played with them and the work kind of grew out of that these kind of long form improvisations in this kind of old abandoned space. And we should talk a little bit more about the, the musicians that you're working with mm. um, because the, the, the vocal tone that they're bringing to the work is clearly very, uh, like a key part of the work. So who are the uh, Invenio singers? So the Invenio singers, are, they're an improvisational choir, they're contemporary musicians and they're incredible. So they both, um, they have these glorious voices that, you know, as well as singing 
harmonies and beautiful melodies um, can create atmospheres and soundscapes. And they work with Jethro and he's like an extra musician and he's playing live. So he's um, looping what their sounds and amplifying them and working together. So they've, they're kind of playing with each other. So he's very much part of the, even though he's not on stage, he's... He's working live with them. So that's Jethro Woodward. Yes. yes. Um, and he's done a lot of work with Raucous over the years. So. Yeah. One of the beautiful things about Raucous is it's this kind of long-term artistic conversation. So Jethro Woodward, Emily Barry, who's the designer, and Richard Vabre, who's the lighting designer, we've been working together for over 10 years now making work together. So there's a real deep um, language and trust and creative conversation that we're having and they're, they're on board from the beginning of a work, creating the work alongside. Which is one of the reasons I think that results in raucous productions being so rich because instead of the sound designer and the lighting designer coming in in the, I don't know, the final week or two of rehearsals or kind of once only when you're actually in the, the, the space and you're in the tech run or something like that, yeah. kind of having them there from the start so those ideas are deeply embedded and have grown alongside the work. Absolutely, and we're all responding to each other. So, you know, Jethro might bring in an idea that we respond to, then he responds to, and it just kind of grows like that. It's, it's a beautiful process. And the work itself, given that it's an ensemble of performers with and without disability, to explore notions of, of trauma and the aftermath of trauma, mm. there's a, certainly a, a, a significant degree of sensitivity that you'd have to enter that kind of process kind of with. Yeah, absolutely. But the performers, you know, the work, all raucous works grows out of kind of the hearts and the minds and the bodies and the imaginations of the performers. And um, and the performers in raucous have a lot to say about resilience and grit and... Um, determination and heartache. So, yeah, there's lots of material that's really rich in there. And one of the other things to think about too is that, yes, this is a work about the aftermath of trauma, but that includes hope as well as despair. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And they sit alongside each other. It also has moments of kindness and of joy alongside the grief. And I think one of the things that we've really discovered in making the work is how, you know, you can be in a in a terrible moment but suddenly slip and find yourself in a moment of of hilarity and joy and then that can slip back into something else quite quickly. You know, um, the state of the aftermath is not just heavy and despair, it's a whole lot of things. And unpredictable things as well. Yeah. Which would then mean in terms of structuring the show, moments that could perhaps in another setting seem jarring, I imagine will make a lot of sense in this work because you can suddenly find yourself laughing hilariously at a, at a memory from the past in the midst of grief. Absolutely. One of my favourite sections of the whole um, show goes from loneliness to kindness, back to loneliness, to courage, to grief, to joy, and it just slips through all of those stages, seamlessly moves, and that's kind of the way things work. Now, uh, for people who aren't familiar with Raucous as a company, you're, I mean, you were the founding artistic director so uh, and have been making work with this company for quite some time, um, and... As yet, the company has not been, to my knowledge, overseas, but I believe you've been invited to make your international debut that's, next year. That's right. So we're going over um, to San Francisco to work with Mark Brew, who's a choreographer um, over there, and he um, is the artistic director of a company called Access Dance, which is an integrated dance company, and he's going to create a work with us. 
So that's very exciting. Now, uh, I know that Rourke has got uh, Creative Victoria funding to assist with the travel and the tour, but there's 15 members of the ensemble. That's a lot of people to take on the road. So if you jump online, raucous.org.au, you'll find a link that uh, encourages you to make a tax-deductible donation to Raucous to help with that tour. So I strongly recommend that you uh, flick some bucks their way to help them get to uh, over to the to the USA. We would love that because currently we cannot take the whole ensemble. So the more money that we raise, the more ensemble that we can take, and we're aiming to take everyone. Uh, Kate, to to come back to the the notion of of hope and despair, mm. um, the election of Trump and the event and Brexit and the last couple of years. That's when we started making the work. Yep. Yeah. So um, what throughout that time we've still seen some kind of. Uh, we live in troubling global times. Absolutely. We've seen the rise of the far right uh, and almost the normalising of, of fascism and white supremacy. What has sustained you and the company uh, over the since the premiere of the work yeah. when kind of perhaps the it, you kind of found something that epitomised hope and then things just kept happening? What mm. sustained you in that time? Well, I think, you know, and I think this is what is very present in the work as well, is it's the the small acts of kindness to each other and how we are together. And I think um, I think that's all all that, that sustains us as a company and what, one of the things I love about this work is it really puts on stage the way we work together and devise work as a group of 14 very different people with very different life experiences and worldviews and yet we can work together and play together and be together because of the way we listen and um, respect each other. And that is what gives me hope, I guess. Raucous are presenting Song for a Weary Throat as part of Melbourne International Arts Festival. Kate, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'm joined in the studio by Stephen Nicolazzo, who's directing Suddenly Last Summer at Red Stitch Actors Theatre, which is uh, a one-act play by Tennessee Williams. It opened in 1958. I've not seen the play. I'm more familiar with it as a film, which is this kind of lurid melodrama that somehow slipped past the Hayes Code in which homosexuality was not allowed to be referenced or mentioned on screen. It features cannibalism and monstrous And lobotomies. It sounds perfectly your cup of tea, Stephen. (laughs) Yeah, you'd think so. Um... Yeah, it's a great play and it's, uh, yeah, it is more memorable as a film which was directed by uh, Mankiewicz and the screenplay was written by Gore Vidal, which makes it even more camp. Um, but the play itself uh, was kind of a play that Williams wrote when he was going through conversion therapy. Oh, um, God. Yeah, so it's a kind of um, attack on forms of psychology and I guess also the fact that his sister was also being um, going through the process of potentially having a lobotomy and then eventually getting one. Um, so I think it's kind of, even though it's lurid and melodramatic, it's quite personal um, and the poetry of it feels really sincere and um, heartbreaking. Yeah. Is this a play that you pitched to Red Stitch saying, I would like to direct this, or did they come to you? I, I brought it to them because I directed it once before when I was just starting out, so about eight or nine years ago. At Melbourne Uni? Or? No, it was at the Cell Block Theatre in Sydney, which is the National Arts School. It was this beautiful theatre that was a old, an old women's prison, um, and so we did it in there, and I wasn't ready. 
Um, and it was a really great experiment. So I, I had an urge to do it again and I brought it to Allah and she said yes. Okay. So it's, uh, as we say, there's, uh, it's about, as with uh, a few kind of plays in the period, sexual repression, yeah. it's about ageing, it's about how we manipulate the past uh, in order to present it now in a, in a more wholesome manner. Uh, and it takes place, what, in a kind of uh, southern, decaying southern Gothic home in New Orleans? Yes, and it's and it's more specifically it's in a, a jungle garden in that southern Gothic mansion. Um, so it's, you know, steamy and the sounds of kind of monkeys crying and birds chirping and screaming. So it's, yeah, it's it, the way he describes it in the stage directions is like violently colourful and um, harrowing. So, yeah, it, whilst it's... <laughs> Yeah, it's Southern Gothic, but it's also got this weird um, jungle fever. I'm looking forward to seeing what your uh, designer Eugene Tay does with that kind of kind of uh, overgrown jungle garden. He's literally gone there, and I think, like, if I can express how beautiful it is, it's just this kind of lush purple jungle um, that is like a tiny diorama in red stitch. Fantastic. I, I'm already visualising... I had this... When you were describing it, I had this image of walking into Red Stitch and somebody, I don't know, spraying me with water or yeah. steam or something like yeah. that to try and create the humid <laughs> hothouse atmosphere. Katie's Vikitas has used a lot of haze to make it feel like you're in a hothouse, so I think it'll be steamy. And uh, the other kind of regular member of Little One Theatre who uh, is uh, Dan Nixon, your yeah. kind of composer design uh, and sound designer as well. Yes. So uh, so what, howling monkeys? Um, yeah, he's, he's found all this incredible material from like Brazilian jungles and, and so it's kind of really lush and lurid as you said earlier um, but also there's this he's found this beautiful um, mid-century kind of American style of scoring to use to underscore the work so that it feels of the period um, and conjures kind of like a really beautiful and sentimental quality um, to undercut the brutality of the text. Now one of the things that intrigues me about the the Certainly what I know of the film is that the one of the major characters, Sebastian Venable, doesn't really appear. No. He's this kind of he's he's gone. He's this off stage kind of departed presence whose shadow kind of uh, hangs over the whole story. Yeah, his shadow kind of haunts the two central female characters of the play, like um, his mother, Mrs Venable, played by the incredible Jennifer Valetic, and um, Catherine, his cousin, who witnessed his death, um, who's played by Kate Cole. Uh, so, yeah, Sebast there's this great article about Sebastian called Who's Afraid of Sebastian Venable because he is the unseen queer uh, anti-hero of the play um, and his demise is kind of what uh, the entire um, thrust of the work is uh, grown from. He was a decadent, decadent man and his life choices were, you know, frowned upon by his mother but she always kind of, I guess, held him up by creating this like false image of their lives together. He's, a, he's effectively, Sebastian is the, I don't know, he's the, the Tennessee Williams equivalent of the mad wife in the attic or something yeah, like that. Yeah, he is. He's kind of, like, yeah, it's kind of like that. Yeah, he, it's a bit Bronte. Um, but he is also this, I guess, the only way that Tennessee Williams at this point 
could investigate homosexuality in quite an explicit way. Um, because the character's not present, it seemed really apt that the women in the story could actually discuss his homosexuality rather than presenting someone who is gay on stage. And I find that a really sad and disassociative portrayal of homosexuality that is really interesting um, and unusual for him as well, for Tennessee Williams, I mean. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that having an omnipresent queer <laughs> character is really... Uh, haunting. And also this is uh, a play and a man played by a playwright haunted by the past and yeah. by by his sister's uh, kind of treatment at, uh, at the hands of the family. Yeah, and I think what's really interesting with this story is that it's about two people who are trying to control the truth or be able to control or um, expose a story that they've, that they've experienced. So, and about, I guess, rewriting the past as well, um, which is, you know, I feel like... I think he spoke about this, that each of the characters are kind of facets of his point of view on how he views the past. So the Mrs Venable, the mother, is about rewriting history so that it suits her needs, which is something he would do in some of his plays, whereas Catherine is someone who is actually trying to expose the, you know, workings of Williams and his kind of dark truths. So it's really fascinating in that way. So... It's a play, given that it's a play about shame and secrets yeah. and truth uh, and confronting or um, painting over the past, mm. The it would be easy to go down a quite a lurid, excessive production, which is perhaps what you would have done 10 years ago with this yeah. play. I suspect now that we're going to see a version that there is a veneer of that kind of camp, luscious play, playfulness, but I get the feeling you're much more concerned with the emotional heart uh, of the story. Absolutely. And I think that's something that's changed in my, you know, work in the last few years. And um, the veneer, yes, is lush, but the performances are the truest forms of those characters. And I think there was a quote in one, some of the reviews of suddenly last summer when it first came out that said, you know, if anyone was going to write a parody of Tennessee Williams, Tennessee Williams has done it himself. And so I feel like this work can't be treated in that camp way because he's already approaching it in that way. So if you tell it truthfully, I actually think it will appear both tragic and kind of ridiculous at the same time, which I think will bring a lot of heart to it. You say that your kind of approach to, to work, to directing has shifted over the last couple of years. Mm. What do you think caused that shift? Was it just a you've experimented with a particular style for a certain amount of time, it was time to try something else or move on to... Is it just an evolution or was there some external factor that you just went, oh, I'm going to sh- adapt? Think, I think it was partially, you know, um, I was finding my voice when I and I wanted to tackle things in kind of ridiculous ways and I enjoyed the excessive and uh, irreverent way that I was approaching certain texts. But then I think there was an external moment when I kind of was a bit heartbroken by some criticism of my work being shallow and I never thought that it was and so I wanted to investigate what that meant and so that changed the way that I started working with actors and sculpting a show, really. It's a reminder to myself and to other critics that our our words have impact and weight. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, but also in a good way in some ways, because, you know, you as an artist can then become, can investigate what people are experiencing when they see your work. And, and sometimes 
um, that can make you a better artist. But, you know, it yeah. can be soul crushing, of course. <laughs> of course. But I think it helps you grow. Yeah, well, it's it, it to me it reinforces the, the 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 it's an overused term in the arts, but the idea of an ecology yeah. that the different parts of it interact, interrelate, feed into one another. You chop down uh, all the trees in a forest, for example. You kill off the animals, even though you don't mm. intend to. Exactly. You cut. Uh, uh, informed, detailed theatre criticism from the pages of daily newspapers. You don't impact just the artists, you impact the broader ecology, including the readers who want to know what's on and, and uh, what the subtexts of works are. And so yeah, forth. and discourse is really interesting for artists to hear about their own work too. You know, like it, it's really fascinating. Um, but yeah, the fact that it's been able to kind of allow me to you bring works like a Tennessee Williams piece with sincerity and heart is, is you know, it's a great thing for me. Suddenly Last Summer by Tennessee Williams, directed by my guest Stephen Nicolazzo, is on uh, now. It's just started previewing. Previews uh, tomorrow, previews actually. To- oh, I thought preview tonight. <laughs> we but- changed it. Oh, OK. <laughs> so previewing from tomorrow uh, and running through until the 4th of October. Sorry, 4th of November. Get it right, Richard. When's your opening night? Uh, next Wednesday. Chookers for that. Thank you, Richard. And uh, chookers for the season. It sounds like it's going to be a kind of rich... Um, kind of, but fruitful exploration of, uh, of the work. Oh, that's good. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> Stephen, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. This has been a pododcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.